0: Your source for community. Muskoka made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, the Bay
1: 887.
0: Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Touching the Past with your host, Tricia Markle. Hello, my name is Tricia Markle, and this is Touching the Past, a program where we explore the heritage of Huntsville and of Muskoka. We touch on the past and the not-so-distant past. Today, I'm very honoured to have Carol Marie Newell with me, and we're going to talk about a wonderful book she has written. But first, though, I'll give you a little background. Dr. John Bernardo was an Irish-born philanthropist and director of homes for poor and deprived children. From his first home in 1867 to his death in 1905, nearly 60,000 children were taken in, He first became involved with the ragged schools in London's severely impoverished East End, relying on charity to support his causes. In 1882, he created his most controversial project of sending out groups of children to Canada for resettlement. And my guest today has a story to tell of one such child. Thank you for joining me, Carol. First of all, tell me a little bit about yourself.
1: Hi, Tricia, thank you so much for having me. Uh, well, we uh, in terms of being in Muskoka area, we bought a cottage up here about 20 years ago. And then during COVID, we decided we would just come up and stay, thinking, okay, this is all going to be over by September and then we can go back to our other house. But, of course, that didn't happen. So, uh, we're still here. And we decided we're just going to stay here.
0: We're glad you did. Thank you. <laughs> so, now, you this all started because of?
1: This started because in 2011, during a phone conversation with my mother's estranged sister, uh, I was talking to her about, I was going to go and and take her to lunch the following week. And she said, when you come, I'm going to give you granny's box. Well, I had seen granny's box once before, and it was sort of a ragged cardboard box that contained the last bits and pieces of her uh, possessions. And she had She had passed away like 20 years prior. And uh, I said, well, why me? Why not one of your own children? And she said, well, because you'll know what to do with it. Uh, so I was flattered by that. I didn't know what to do with it, but we moved on and we talked a bit more. And uh, as I say, she and my mother had been estranged for about 60 years and my mother had passed away three months before. And I thought, okay, we it, we seem to be opening up about these family things. Maybe we can have a chat when we get together for lunch the following week. And so I said I would call her in a few days and set up a date. Uh, but three days later, uh, her son called me and indicated she'd had a stroke and then she passed away. So I got the box at her funeral, and I felt um, responsible for finding my grandmother's story.
0: Well, there's always one person in the family that is more interested in the family than some, and I guess you were it.
1: I guess so, or maybe I got the short straw, I'm not (laughs) sure.
0: So, that's getting a box. Where did that box lead you to?
1: Well, there was nothing of any consequence in the box. It was all just clues. But I did know that between 1869, or at least i learned, between 1869 and 1939, Britain sent more than 100,000 home children to Canada. And uh, my grandmother, Winnie Cooper, was one of them. She came at age 15 and went to a farm to work as a domestic. And uh, I spent the first year after in Inheriting the Box, uh, researching the British child migration, not really knowing what I was going to do with this information. I thought I'd like to write, but I really didn't believe that I would ever find enough information to write a nonfiction book. So I wrote a novel... Uh, and uh, sort of inspired by uh, my grandmother's story. And uh, I handed that in for a manuscript assessment, and it sort of came back sort of wishy-washy, and I realized, well, that really wasn't very good. I'm going to try and write a nonfiction book. So another year or two of research and searching my own memory for the things that I recall, the stories my mother told me, uh, I started writing a nonfiction book, and uh, it took 10 years, but I finished it.
0: when you start doing that, there's an awful regret that you didn't listen more closely to Grandma when she Absolutely. spoke and, you know, Aunt Aggie telling the story, the same story over again. And you sort of, as a younger person, you just say, oh, no, not this. This is terrible. But now that I'm, I'm a little older, a lot older, I really appreciate history, the history of our family, the history of the town. And, I mean, it's so important to keep this alive. And I'm so pleased that you have taken Uh, this story because it does open a new area that I don't think a lot of us realize. I mean, we've, we've heard about homeboys, but really I'd never even consider homegirls and it's yes, just something- there was
1: there was a lot of girls came. At first, the, the first groups that came, actually, with Maria Rye were girls. And they settled through a home in um, uh, St. Catharines. And it was she who inspired Dr. Bernardo to start sending children. He didn't really want to do that at first. He He felt very close and very responsible for these children. He really didn't want to send them away. But he finally realized that an open front door requires an open back door. And he had to send these children somewhere. And Canada desperately needed citizens. And Britain had... Far too many. Uh, in the in the 1841 census, which was the first census in Britain to uh, to do uh, to calculate demographics, they discovered that 45 percent of the population was under the age of 20, which really made it pretty much impossible to have enough people to work, and particularly once the, the uh, child labour laws changed around 1869, which was the time that sort of propelled the beginning of this migration. So now, uh, with after approximately 100,000 children coming to Canada in this program, approximately now 10% of Canadian population is descended from these children, but most people aren't aware of that. But, in the times that, since the book has been published in September last year and i 've been out making presentations in various places there 's always people in the audience, generally two, three, four, five people who have had a home child in their family and want to know more so there are uh, there are resources out there. Uh, as I said, it it took me years to find all the information. Uh, One of the wonderful things that I found through this was that I had a family in Wales and I discovered those people through my research and have connected with them. And as I said earlier, I'm actually traveling to Wales this uh, May to visit with them. So that was really rewarding for me.
0: Well, it's amazing what that little beat up box brought you. It is. You know, there's just so many things. Um, Yeah, as as you were saying that I know myself, I think of homeboys and I don't think I know of any home girls and and life must have been pretty rough for some of them, boys and girls, when they came to this country because it was really... Not a very developed country in the beginning.
1: It was not a developed country. The children did not arrive. They were all city children. They had no idea about farming. Typically, they arrived with some clothing, but nothing to handle the elements here. Um, Many of these children were neglected, abused, kept from school. Uh, There was a lot of terrible things went on. It was difficult to keep track of what was happening. There were home visits. Bernardo's was probably the best organization to send children, and they did try to keep Track, But these kids were scattered like far and wide. And, you know, we didn't have roads and it was difficult for, for the uh, people from the, the branch in Toronto to get around and check on all of these children. And oftentimes the farmer would have the kid out in this field and say, oh, he's a great child. You know, don't worry about him. Meanwhile, the child is being neglected or beaten and nobody knew. Now, in terms of my grandmother, Winnie, her her story was, was not a tragic story, uh, but it was still difficult. She did spend three years in the children's village in uh, just outside of London, uh, training to be a dutiful little servant. That was their, their mandate for the girls, and many of them went into service in Britain, uh, but those who came to Canada still... You know, we're trained to be dutiful little servants. So they weren't trained to set goals or to find their way in life. And once they're 18, they're out in the world and they haven't got a clue where to start. So that made it difficult for them to adapt to Canadian society. I, I understand that completely.
0: Even in the sixties coming over from Britain, I had a little trouble adapting to some things, <laughs> but um, how did they, how did say a farmer?
1: Get in touch with whoever to get a child? It's the exact um, way of doing that, I, I would assume that they would have uh, contacted the homes directly, and Bernardo's was the largest organization, particularly in Ontario. Pretty much all of the people that I've met, their their kids have come from Bernardo's. Uh, they would have paid a head fee. The Canadian government paid a head fee. Uh, the British government would pay their passage. They really wanted to move the children out. They were a commodity, and uh, Doctor Bernardo was one of the first people to use fostering. So some of the children that came here were very very young, and they wouldn't typically be sent out to work till they were age nine or ten. So the very very young ones uh, would either stay in the in the. Uh, home in Toronto for boys or the Hazelbury home in Peterborough for girls, or they would put into foster care. But at once they reached the age of uh, working maturity, nine or 10, they were sent out to another farm and not, not put up for adoption.
0: It's amazing. And you hear, I think, I think more of the bad stories come to light than the good ones, but we know that there are happy endings to some of these, these stories.
1: There are, and it's very true. You know, there, there's always an appetite for bad news. Nobody wants to talk about, you know, the birthday parties on the on the news. Uh, but, um, but Winnie's story, I I think, is a fortunate story, and some parts of it are very funny. There is tragedy in the story, but a lot of it is she had a great sense of humor. And uh, there's uh, six chapters in the book about the summer that she came to stay with us when she had a heart attack, two heart attacks following the death of her current boyfriend. Uh, And she had to sleep with me because I had the only double bed. So that's where I learned her story.
0: Well, I'm anxious to hear more of Winnie's story. So um, we'll be back in just a few moments after our station break. By Muskoka for Muskoka. Your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine. The Bay 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental. And you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Touching the Past with your host, Trisha Markle. Welcome back to Touching the Past, where I'm speaking to Carol Marie Newell about her book Outside the Gate. And continue your story. We <clears throat> we were talking about happy and sad times, but Winnie's, I think, sort of is kind of a, a level
1: story that did have a happy ending it did and she came from very very difficult circumstances and the three years that she spent in the children's village uh, outside of london was probably a very very formative years for her it was most likely the best place for a child to be it was very it was beautiful it was 63 uh, cottages on around 80 acres they had a hospital a school a church they had everything there that they needed but once they left there then, and they came to Canada, things did change. Winnie was fortunate and then she did go with a good home because many of the farmers were cruel toward the children. They were not well received by the public or by the politicians. They were looked upon as defective, likely to commit heinous crimes. Um, many of the girls did become pregnant. I shouldn't say many, but. That was a, that was a problem. Dr. Bernardo had a receiving home in Toronto because some of these girls did become pregnant. And of course, we know that this was probably not intentional and not on their part. Uh, so they were victims. Um, the, I think that in Winnie's case, uh, she did go with a good home. She was, he was happy there. She made friends very readily because she was an outgoing, a cheerful person. And, uh, she met my grandfather uh, there in Erin Township is where they lived. Uh, he was also a Bernardo boy. So of course they connected fairly early and were ready to make their own way. Probably got married too young, but the story goes on from there.
0: Well, it's good. I know it's going to be a fascinating read you got a little paragraph or something that you could perhaps, um, I'm throwing this at Carol just out of the blue, but I have started to read the book and decided that this was going to be my vacation book because it sounded just absolutely wonderful. And it's, I've got to say it's wonderfully written too. So Carol,
1: I'll just get you to read a little paragraph. Give us a taste of it. Okay. Well, uh, one of the things, this is a creative nonfiction book, which means that the stories are all real. The people are all real, the characters. Uh, but I was not there, so the narrative and the dialogue are created. So this is the letter that I created at Whitty to give her a voice. She's writing to her mother on the 20th of May, 1911. Dear ma'am, this morning, mother comes into the kitchen looking all churlish and starts slamming the pots and pans around as if she's trying to bust up the place. She were going on and on about how hard she works. That her da sent her here, and she's too delicate for this life. Delicate, me So then she says, that I'm not much help to her, but I'm better than note, which were not very flattering. And however will she manage without me, since the other girls are all lazy lasses. So I ask her then, am I going somewheres? And she says, I, Canada. Well, ma'am, you could have knocked me down with a feather. I were that shocked. But she was still going on and on about how will she manage, and that it's so unfair to her. So I says, when do I leave? And she says, June 29. So, ma'am, there you have it. I had a good boo-hoo over it, but no one cares. They tell us that Canada's the land of milk and honey, but it's really the land of ice and snow. That's what I think. Ta-ra, Winnie. Wonderful.
0: That sets the whole, whole scene, doesn't it? So, <clears throat> there's an awful lot of research go, went into this book. I can just tell from the few pages
1: I've flipped through. So... How did you start? Where did you start with your research? I probably started uh, online with Ancestry and uh, I found quite a bit of information there. One thing links to another. I went to libraries, libraries in Wellington County. The archives up there is very good. Uh, Peterborough, because of Hazelbray Home. Uh, I went to uh, Bernardo's. So for £100, if your child came from Bernardo's, you can get an archival search, which takes about a year. And when I did receive that information, I was quite shocked to find the 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 history behind Granny's background. I traveled to London. I spent time at Bernardo's with a senior archivist. I walked around the remaining parts of the village, which was quite um, traumatizing for me in a way. I traveled to Scarborough to find out where she had lived there. And uh, as I say, now I'm going to Wales to find out where the rest of the story took place. So,
0: is there perhaps another book in, in your
1: life somewhere along the there line? There is another book. It's not uh, along this line. It is a novel uh, about uh, an 89-year-old woman living in a retirement home who's very unhappy and is plotting her escape. <laughs> that,
0: that, that sounds like <laughs> another interview coming up in, in, in a year or so. But no, this is, uh, I've been very interested in once I, I had read part that the book was coming out, because as a... A younger person in England, I remember we had these little brown and gold coloured boxes that. Um, were around, I can't remember in the fall. I believe it was we'd go round door to door asking for pennies for Dr. Bernardo's Homes. So they must have existed quite late because I'm talking about the fifties and sixties.
1: Well, Bernardo's is still in is still there. It is the second largest children's charity in Britain, uh, next to um, you know, what's the other one? Uh, the Foster Children, something like that. Anyway, um. It's, it's it's a large organization. When I went there, uh, the the main office is on the property of the original Children's Village. But now they do different things. They don't put children out anymore. They it, they're into fostering and family support that sort of thing. But it's, it's a very big organization, and they do have extensive records. They were better at keeping records than any of the other groups that sent children out. And it wasn't only Canada. Bernardo sent children to Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and Rhodesia. And they continued sending them to Australia into the 70s. They stopped in Canada in 1939, but they went on in the other countries.
0: Uh, It just boggles the mind to think of all these children. And I know one particular case where the child was taken from the family without the family's knowledge, just a kid playing on the street and probably in the the worst part of london and never knew that there was a, still a family he had brothers and sisters and a mother still in england and it's of course again it's the the sad stories you hear you don't hear so much about the
1: the homeboy that went to a loving couple and ended up Owning the farm. that And that certainly did happen uh, oftentimes. And uh, two, parents would, you know, they fell on hard times. Somebody was sick uh, or was out of work and they would take, maybe they take the children to Bernardo's or one of the other organizations and say, you know, can we you take the children for six months till we get on our feet? Oh, yes, yes, of course. Of course we can. Oh, they could come back six months later and the children might be gone. And then they had no resources to try and fight that. Dr. Bernardo was taken to court a few times over those sort of instances and over his phony advertising. You talk about the little boxes. I mean, they needed money. So, uh, and Dr. Bernardo was fortunate to have some, uh, some resources, uh, like Lord Shaftesbury, who was a, was a great philanthropist and helped him tremendously. But, uh, by the time he died in 1905, he, there was 8,700 children in his care in Britain and they were broke. So they had to they had to raise money through various ways, and uh, the children's boxes that was news to me when you told me. So that was an, another route, obviously. Pennies here and there.
0: Yep, yeah, it was. It was. It, they were given out at the schools. Everybody got some. Kids went out and collected. Some didn't. But I, I just in my mind, I can still see that little. It was a cardboard box that you kind of assembled yourself, uh-huh. and with a little slot in the top, big enough to take an old English penny. So. <laughs> Now, that's taking me back a long time. But it, it's funny how times change. For a couple of generations, people did not want to admit that their grandpa, their dad, whatever, was a home child.
1: No, no. it was a terrible embarrassment to be a home child. Now, when I found my cousin in Wales, she was 92, she's now 97, she did not know her father was a home child until he passed away and she found a letter from Bernardo's. She did not tell her children... And I asked her why. And I said, you know, your father's long gone. And she said, you don't understand the shame associated with having been a home child. You just would never tell anybody that. It was too embarrassing.
0: And it's like being the child of a, a convict in Australia. Exactly. Yes. Now it's it's fashionable to brag about it and want to know the history. And my family started with this homeboy or homegirl that came over from England in 19-whatever. Mm-hmm. And it, it times do change, and I'm glad that you've brought this out and given it a lot more recognition to part of our history we can't always be proud of, but... Again, one wonders what would have happened to those children in England if they hadn't come to Canada. There's two sides to every
1: coin, I guess. There are, and it's a, it's a catch-22. It was a, very good, it was a very good program for Britain. It rid them of all of these extra children that would not have had jobs. It, and in Canada, how would we have run the farms without all these children? So um, and when the First World War broke out, 10,000 boys signed up because they wanted to go home. That left a big hole in the farming industry. It certainly did. Well, this
0: has been a wonderful bit of information for me, and I've enjoyed talking to you. Perhaps you could tell us where we could get outside the gate in around the area.
1: Uh, well, you can check my website, carolnewell.com, c a r o l N-E-W-A-L-L dot com. Uh, that will tell you sources of where you can buy the book, online and at bookstores. You could probably go into most any uh, independent bookstore if you have a favorite, and they can order it for you if they don't already have it.
0: Well, that's great. And I, as I mentioned before, that's going to be my holiday read. So thank you, Carol, for so generously giving of your time. We do appreciate it. Uh, this has been Touching the Past on Hunters Bay 88.7. Join us on our next program where we discover more of our heritage. Thank you, Trisha.